Gaylord Shenelec has been described as a poet, a wood engraver, a fine printer, an artist, a writer, a letterpress printer, a designer, and an illustrator. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Well, thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'd like to challenge uh, something you say on your website, which is Gaylord Shenelec has set the standard for contemporary artist books over the last 30 years. Looking at your output, I wouldn't necessarily call them artist books. They're fine press books. Why do you call them artist books? I don't. <clears throat> On the website you do? Well, no, I don't. That was, uh, that was a quote from a gallery, from Groveland Gallery. That sounded good. <laughs> but it wasn't me talking. I wouldn't say anything like that. I, although, I have to say, I mean, I came up from the literary world. You know, I started out. Poetry was my first interest, and uh, started illustrating small press books and eventually printing. And um, so I have literary roots, and that led to fine press. And then the artist book movement came along mid '80s, in the '80s, I guess. When, yeah. Like the Center for Book Arts started up here right about then. And I know the Walker has a, quite an impressive collection of artist books. Oh, they do. They had a wonderful li- librarian named Rosemary Furtek. Who I know. I interviewed her. Did you? I did, yeah. Ah, oh, she was great. She really was, yeah. She championed those books. She when, did. When no one else would. That's right. And she, yeah. and she did it on a shoestring budget, too, for many years. But the artist book thing came along, and, um, and I could see that they were kind of taking the day. and Not taking the day, but they were, there, there was a lot of momentum behind that side of things. And I could see that to survive, I was going to have to make books that were acceptable in that realm. And so that forced me to start sort of pushing in directions that I probably wouldn't otherwise have. And I've always been uncomfortable with the word art, just mm. in general. It's kind of a pretentious label that I've never been comfortable with. So I avoided that whole label for a long time. But, you know, I mean, at this point, the fact that they at least find my work interesting is good. They meaning artist book collectors. Yeah, the artist book collectors, yeah. And other book artists. See, the way I see it is that book artists don't necessarily concern themselves with print the printed word, necessarily. They Anything that kind of comes to their mind that's related to a book, yeah. they, they can put that out, but they don't have the craftsmanship that's right. And, and you there, have. there are a number of us that, other people that came to it probably from the same direction I did, who maintain that craftsmanship and printing. So we're sort of called those cars that are part electric and part gasoline. We're kind of like hybrids. Right. You know, we're still doing the printing and we're still very focused on fine typography and design and materials and everything. But we're making books that aren't necessarily traditional traditional books. So you've been driven by the market then, to some extent. Oh, yeah. I mean, how else are you going to survive when you're kind of just doing what you want to do? You have to, you have to figure out a way to make money doing it, especially things that take as much time as this kind of work does. You know, I mean, for me to have survived, it, my life is my work. That's all, all the time, one way or another, whatever I'm doing, it relates to the work I'm doing. But it takes that kind of commitment to make a living at it. And you have to pay attention to the marketplace. 
You mentioned John Randall earlier. Um, he like when he prints a book. Generally, there's probably four different editions, four different sort of states of the book because he's sort of identified over the years. You know, I can sell this many books to this people for this price, and 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 and, and that's kind of the way that we all have to think to some degree. So you mean deluxe edition down to the standard edition then? Yeah, and, yeah. And several in between then. It seems, yeah. And then some people have actually then played around with the idea of a trade edition that's more, um, you know, like a larger press run you're trying to sell more to the general public. That hasn't been real successful, though. I did one once, and, and it helped, but it wasn't. It's, it's, it takes a different kind of attention. Well, it kind of defeats the purpose, too, in a sense. I mean, if you want a fine press book, you know, I mean, that's what you're known for. Yeah. Why are you going to buy a trade edition of that? Yeah, well, because the fine press book costs $1,000 and the trade edition costs $50, maybe. Right. <laughs> you know. the, other, uh, the other question that I had was, I have seen you identified as a poet in a number of different places, and... <laughs> And I heard an interview that you gave some years back that said something like you were you were too you know scared to be a poet. This is early on, but yeah. that, what, what, can you explain what you meant by well, that? What I said was is that I didn't have the courage for that occupation. And the first what first brought that brought me to realize that was the idea of reading poetry aloud to other people. I mean, that's intensely personal stuff. Yeah. And I just didn't have it in me, you know, to do that. But beyond that, to make it, for me to survive as a printer and a book artist or whatever you want to call me is one thing. I mean, I can sell a book for thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. But to make a living as a poet writing poetry is way harder. You know, and academia is one way most people go, I suppose. But I just, to have made my life, you know, as a poet per se, I think would have been something I just wasn't prepared to do. Mm, you weren't prepared to put up with the poverty. Uh, well, or, I put up with some poverty, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Or the, as you say, the you're too much of a private person, if that's how you define well, most poets poetry. are pretty private people, though. It's amazing how, when they're actually giving a public reading, they all of a sudden just turn on sometimes it's pretty incredible really i think right yeah and that's of course assuming that at least some of the poetry is based on personal experience yeah mm-hmm. but doesn't it kind of have to be well that's that's a question that many have asked and i think t.s Eliot said that a poem should be impersonal oh really or a poet oh again i might be mixing things up about why he said that but uh well, there are different ways of looking at everything. To me, it's extremely personal stuff. Well, yeah, I see your own reaction to the world. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have written poetry over the years. Oh, I still do. I've actually, yeah, I've been writing quite a bit more poetry in the last few years. And what motivates you to do that? Uh, well, part of what I think the mission is of an artist or a poet or a creative person in general is, is you're sort of recording your life in a way mm-hmm. and, but you have to keep moving you can't stop I mean for me anyway the way that I look at things I, I can't if I, if I start to get satisfied with a certain situation that I'm in that's I become sort of dead in the water mm-hmm. so I every in fact every big project I do I always leap I always I have to make a leap both technically and and conceptually and and just in the way I, I approach things to it whether I'm writing poetry or I'm 
printing from tobacco or doing wood engravings or writing or setting type. I mean, that all that stuff has to keep evolving and changing. And I think that, especially with craft-oriented um, work, the sooner you can get started, the better, because it takes a whole lifetime. There's a, there's a famous quote of some kind that a craft takes a lifetime to learn or something like that. Mm. I know what you mean. I, I can't place it right now, but... For me, that's really true. Well, I've read that you've each book that you do is a leap into something I don't know. The exciting part is is unknown, dealing with new challenges. Yeah, that's true. I like the leap. I noticed I used it a minute ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that comes from Thomas McGrath. Are you familiar with him? I've heard the name, and I know he was a big influence on you. He was. He was. Yeah, he's he, was. A, he was a poet from North Dakota. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was. He was a great poet. And why is he a great poet? He just had a great, great life in poetry. I mean, he grew up in North Dakota. He um, ended up in Oxford. He was a Rhodes Scholar. Then he came back, and he was in California. He was he was in the military for a while, and they had him writing screenplays. And he was writing these little anti, subtle anti-war things between the lines of the screenplays he was writing. He was in Los Angeles for a while. He got blacklisted during the McCarthy years. Um, he came back up here and taught in Moorhead, and I got to know him a little bit at that point of his life. And then he moved to the Twin Cities. But his whole life was that way. It was a constant progression. He was constantly evolving and changing. And I was lucky enough to get to know him a little bit when he was alive. And so, yeah, he's a huge influence. But what makes him a great poet? I don't know. (laughs) To me, he was. What do you think makes a great poet? I'm the interviewer here. Okay. <laughs> but he did I don't have, have a an good imp- answer to that. He had an impact on you for for a reason, right? Yeah. Just what you loved the way he put the words in front of each other. I, or? I, 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 he was somebody that I could understand and somebody that I agreed with. I think. And in one of the key things that he I can't remember was at the beginning of Letter to Imaginary Friend. He did. He has this epic like. Is it like a 40-year-long poem, this long poem that starts in Los Angeles with the line, from here it is necessary to ship all bodies east. And it starts from there, and it goes for like 40 years. But it seems to me there's a little quote at the beginning of Copper Canyon did a collected letter, I don't know, 20 years ago maybe, and, and it, uh, the moon stuck in my pocket is the line that he used to sort of as a metaphor for, for the muse. He wouldn't leave him alone after that. He just couldn't not do the work he was doing. And one thing that he told me early on, I, you know, I had these poetic aspirations and I'd written not a very good poem and I printed it into a little book. And in this poem, I claimed to have learned to recognize his footprints in the snow. It was like sort of a metaphor for following in his tracks. And I sent him this poem, printed in this nice little book, and he sent back a note, thanks for the mysterious little book. I thought it was nice to hear from him, but I was mysterious. And I ran into him at the airport one time, and and I said, well, thanks for the note. He said, said, I like mystery. I like mystery. And that sort of made me realize that it's it's the space that you make between images that's interesting to me mm-hmm. and to him. It's not necessarily, it's the things that are implied that aren't necessarily stated, which yeah. is, to me, pretty in- essential to the work I do, I think. Yeah, negative capability. Negative capability. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Never, never heard that before, but yeah, yeah I think so. You uh, you went to North Dakota University? University of North Dakota, University of Dakota, yeah. And then you came to the uh, Twin Cities yes. and started illustrating uh, for small 
small presses, and one of them was Coffee House. Yes. I've got a couple of those because I, I interviewed uh, Alan. Oh, you did? Some years ago. Oh, yeah. yeah. before he died. So what, what got you into illustrating small press books? Well, when you grow up in North Dakota, you need to go somewhere. And this was the nearest city, so I came here. And, and like I was saying, I was feeling that I wasn't up for the task of becoming a poet. But my connections in the world were more in the literary community. So I moved here, and I wasn't going to make it writing poetry. So I started illustrating small press books. And at that time, so this is like the late 70s, early 80s, the literary scene was just alive, you know. I mean, there were little presses springing up all over the place. Coffee House was one. He was down in Iowa at that time. He was toothpaste press. And all these presses were getting these little bits of money to, you know, print these chapbooks and little books. And from so, the government? From the government. Mostly, yeah, the government. There, there, were, there were a bunch of little governmental grants of some kind. I mean, State I got, government? The state heads there. There were different foundations. I didn't. I wasn't really into getting the little grants. Mm. The publishers were. My job was just to take a manuscript and read it, and try and come up with some imagery that didn't necessarily illustrate the poetry. But what did you call it a minute ago? Yeah, negative capability. It had negative capabilities. I was always looking for something that would survive alongside the poetry. I mean. To illustrate, literally illustrate poetry always made me uncomfortable because it's such personal space. So I was always looking for something that could parallel it but not interfere with it. But there was plenty of work to do. I mean, <laughs> I used to do a lot of early illustration for David Wilk of the Truck Press, who started that press. He was, the, the, he was in charge of the National Endowment for the Arts and Literature for a while when he left here. Um, he's married to Jonas Agee, the writer, if you know who she is. But that was all, there was just this huge synergy going on here in the late 70s through the 80s of this literary activity. So it was the perfect place for me to land and get plenty to do. It's interesting that, yeah, because there's a coffee house, they're still going. Yeah, they and, are. And very well known small presses as Coffee House, there's Milkweed, there's Grey Wolf. Grey Wolf, yeah. All here in, in yeah. Minneapolis, you, you know. I wonder why they're here. Funding. The business community here was very, very good as far as funding literary activities. And so mm. they all came here, and they all came here. Another one that you didn't mention that I think still survives in Moorhead, Minnesota, is New Rebers Press, which Bill Truesdale brought here from New York. And that was also right about at the same time. Mm. So you had these four little literary presses starting out. All of them, even New Rebers, I think, has actually survived to this day. Right. And some of them, I mean, a lot of the books, books that I've come across lately have been coming out of, like, Grey Wolf. They've been publishing a lot of amazing stuff. Oh, yeah, they've been winning prizes. And, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not that that's a measure of much, but... Well, that's yeah. what they shoot for, though. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, you, you set up Midnight Paper Sales in 1980. Yes. What motivated you to do that? Well, I was <clears throat> living in a warehouse with a bunch of other young artists and writers and musicians, and you know, we were all in our early 20s, I think. But our, the warehouse we lived in was across the street from a paper company. On the loading dock, they had these scrap bins that they'd put all the offcuts from paper when they custom-cut sheets. And so after dark, we'd sneak over there and we'd get paper out of the bins, all these scraps. That's where the name of the press came from. So... 
I had the paper. And at one point, when I first moved in there, a friend of mine had rescued an old Vandercook off a loading dock on its way to the scrapyard. I mean, at that time, the printing industry was, in a big way, shifting over from letterpress to offset printing. And the letterpress stuff mm-hmm. is heavy. It takes up a lot of space. And they were, they, everybody just wanted to get rid of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so those of us that were became aware of it, it was just amazing what you could get for next to nothing. So Gary Egger, who was also in the warehouse, had salvaged this old Vandercook proofing press. And I had an illustration job I was doing. Um, I was doing some wood cuts, and I was just getting boards from the lumberyard and cutting these images. He said, well, bring him over. You know, we can print him on my press. And so he kind of showed me the press, and, and that was that. And you fell in love with that doing it? The process of right. printing. But, you know, he was doing prints, I was doing prints, and then one day I just took a simple piece of paper and I folded it in half and I realized, Mm. that's a book now. And that was one of those great moments for me. All of a sudden I realized, hey, I can make books. And I ended up buying the print shop. There was this guy who printed for the Catholic Church. He did bulletins and all this stuff. And he was in the nursing home, and these two sisters who would worked for him all these years were selling off his stuff. And Gary and I went over there, and I bought some type and a couple of presses and a paper cutter, and, and away I went and started printing. But then the whole book artist thing started going. The Minnesota Center for Book Arts opened for the first time, and I got this Jerome Book Arts grant to print a book. And so I had this money to print this book. But my printing was a little on the rough side. And one of the things that the director at the center, um, Jim Sitter, insisted on was that I take this class from from, um, Jerry Lang of the Beeler Press. And so I took this class with Jerry, and immediately it it stuck with me. Jerry showed me how to print well, the the right paper, the, the right ink right impression and and it was all very simple and very basic but up until that point I had no idea of what fine printing was and then all of a sudden I did and that was a huge difference from then on I've been printing well (laughs) up until that point I didn't print so well well that that's a very interesting uh, statement because anyone who's interested in fine press books needs to know what has been printed well and what hasn't been printed well. So yes. what's the difference? Something that has been printed, there, there's, a, there's a certain magic that happens when you have just the right impression and just the right amount of ink. There's a crispness of the, of the type that isn't there otherwise. The, the big, biggest pitfalls are like slurring of the type, over-inking of the type. You know, things aren't printing clearly. So you're looking for crispness. Yes. And in fact, one of the aspects of a letterpress printed letter that's unique is the halo that forms around the impression. Because as the type sinks into the paper, that slope of the paper catches the light in a certain way, and it's almost like a glow that it creates. And you want the glow, or you don't oh, want you the glow? Oh, you do want the you glow. You do want yes, the glow. You do. But you don't want too much of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so when you're evaluating a, a book to buy, you look for not too much glow, but a little bit of glow, or enough glow. I suppose. I mean, although I don't really look at books to buy like that. Most of the books that I actually... I tr- for trade, I mean, I, I've, I've traded a lot of fine books in my day. Usually I buy books, but the books that I buy are more um, 
are more resource books. I'm thinking of people who can't who, print, who collect like fine print yeah. books or yeah, are yeah, interested yeah. in them. Well, yeah. I suppose that, I mean, the, the, the printing is very clear, and if you look at the back, so much, you tell so much by looking at the back of the sheet when you're printing. I mean, like Barb and I doing Make Ready right now, when we pull an impression, we look at the back of that sheet, look it into the light to look at the shadows. And that's, for a fine printer of type, you're doing that too. And the rule of thumb is, is when you look at the back of that sheet, you want to be able to see the impression, but you don't want to be able to make out a particular letter. That's one of the little keys. But the thing about printing is, is that everybody who's good at it has a little different idea about it. Because nobody does things quite the same, and especially when you do it again and again and again, year after year after year, you get into certain ways of doing things that are peculiar to you. And actually, I've been finding in recent years that every now and then something will come along and I'll realize that this thing that I have believed for 30 years isn't necessarily true. And I'll say, well, maybe, maybe I'll try it a little differently. And it, there, there are so many different ways to do it. Uh, of the works that you've produced, and there's uh, over 40 books that you've produced, at least I read that somewhere. That's probably about right. Do you have, I know it's difficult to choose among your children, but do you, do you have one that you think is the best printed? The best printed? Yeah, there was one, A House in the Country. It was in the 90s. And it was printed so well that it took me years to warm up to the book. I mean, there was nothing about it that bothered me from a printing point of view. And usually, I mean, when you're printing, you're striving for perfection that doesn't exist. And so you're always frustrated and, and you're always pushing for something you cannot quite attain. But when I finished printing that book, there was nothing about it technically from a printing point of view that bothered me. And, and that really bothered me. <laughs> you know, I mean. So you're never satisfied. No, no. Yeah, even if it's perfect, it, that that was the problem with that book, I think. And it, and it wasn't perfect, but to my mind, when I finished it, printing from a printing perspective, it felt like it was. So what is perfect then? If it's you're saying it's unachievable. It's but, unachievable. But it's but it's all but it's a goal, though. So you must know what it is. It's a goal. I don't know that you do. It doesn't exist. I don't think. What one of your books are you proudest of having produced? Probably The Silva, because that's probably had the most influence on other people. And my book dealer friend, Rulon Miller, says that that's probably going to be my the book I'm most well known for at the end of the day. Your master work? I guess so. Mm-hmm. I guess that's... I don't know. I mean, maybe that's true. I mean, it was, it's a very substantial book. It's a very interesting book. What it's about? You don't know that one? I do know it, but I'm Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah, it's about trees. It's um, Actually, I worked with Benjamin Berhoven, who had just graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design, and his uncle Gary, who I printed with, I was mentioned Gary earlier. He's the one that rescued the Vandercook off the loading dock. He brought Ben by one day, and uh, Ben had never seen a letterpress shop, and he was fascinated. So he stayed on for a six-month internship. And at that time, I was very interested in the woods, and... Um, we just enrolled our property in a state forestry program, and so we had to agree to a, a sustainable forestry plan, and I was struggling with this, and 
Ben was doing the internship and his dream was to do a full-scale silva study of trees. And so at the end of the internship, I said, hey, Ben, why don't we go ahead and do a silva? Because we have this common interest. And and, and this was in Stockholm, this Wisconsin. Was, yeah, rural Wisconsin. We had yeah. 25 acre, 27 acres of woods there. And so Ben and I spent two years collecting specimens of all the different trees in the forest mm-hmm. and making type-high printable blocks, both end grain and long grain, from all these different species of trees and printing specimen prints of these specimens with the idea of making the prints look as much like the actual wood as possible. And in the meanwhile, we were both writing about it. He was doing all sorts of research about each species and writing a a central text. And I was writing about the process and why we chose that tree and what we were thinking about and things like that. And that was the Silva. I guess it was about a four-year project. Yeah, that's the thing about your books. You know, it's quite an investment of not only... Time, well, time primarily, and I think, like you say somewhere, that time is uh, oh, yeah. respecting time is a an important principle. It takes time to let books come into being. Right. You know, the book we're working on now it's called My Mighty Journey, and it started with the Minnesota Historical Approach Society Press approaching me to illustrate a book, and. I, you know, I was sort of on the fence about it, but eventually, since I was moving to the city, it, it, it made sense for me to do it. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it, but we can't have any set deadline for this thing because it has to, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what's going to happen with it, and we have to let it take its own time to evolve. And they're a commercial publisher, so that was a lot for them to agree to, but it was the one stipulation I made at the beginning And so here we are, I guess we're about three years into it. We probably have another year or two before we're done. And finally, we're settling on, okay, it's probably going to be a fall of 2019 publication, maybe. Although I just got an email from them lately and they want to talk. So (laughs) I think they're starting to think we need to set a date. But I really believe that. And, And more and more over the years, I've been able to let that happen. I've been able to let the book sort of dictate its own life, really. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, I'll use this book we're working on now as an example. I mean, we've been collecting materials from along the river. It's the story of St. Anthony Falls and its 12,000-year journey. It took it 12,000 years to move 10 miles from here, in this very place is where it started, to Minneapolis, where it is now. So to start out with, with the project, we went along the course that the falls had traveled and picked up objects. What do you mean the course that the falls followed? What does that mean? Well, it's the Mississippi River. So it's not the falls. The falls have stayed put, right? No, the falls moved. That's the point of the book. The falls moved. How, yes. How does that happen? All right. The glaciers melted. Okay, the glaciers, yeah. 12,000 years ago, the glaciers were melting. The water was flowing from Canada down mm-hmm. through North Dakota, across Minnesota and the Minnesota River Valley. And just between here and Minneapolis, the Minnesota met the Mississippi River, and so then it's a huge torrent of water. And when it came here to St. Paul, there was another flow coming in from the north, and that flow from the north managed to get beneath the limestone crust and start eroding the sandstone beneath the limestone. And this is a huge, it's, it's a huge flow of water going on, and so the limestone began collapsing into the chasm that was forming. And when it did, this gigantic waterfall started moving up the river. So moving backwards. Yes. It's getting eroded. Up river. It's moving up river. Right. 
And so there's a writer named John Coy who wrote this story in verse from the waterfall's perspective, describing what was going on along its shores over these 12,000 years. And that's, you know, that's about when human presence first was, came around, you know, the Paleo-Indian period, and, and then and on and on and on. The Europeans show up in 1680, and then things really went crazy. But the, the story that we're working on is that story of the waterfall's life, basically, its progression. And it's all about time. It's about 12,000 years. So time is the essential element for mm. me, for sure. What, uh, if you could just uh, identify some titles of books that collectors might, might want to make themselves aware of, of yours? Well, the Silva. Every now and then one of those does show up on the secondary market. They Lock- sold out a long time ago, I guess. Yeah, it sold out pretty quickly. And what year was that? 2008, maybe? <laughs> if I had, had my <laughs> bibliography here, I could look it up. But yeah, I think it's about then. Uh, Mayflies was the book before that. Mayflies is the one that kind of started me on this natural history thread that I've been on for 20 years, I guess now. So I did Mayflies, and then I did the Silva. And then I did a study of Lake Pepin called Lac de Pleur, which to my mind at this point is the best book I've done. I mean, it, there's more of me in that book than the rest of them, I think. Is that the one with the map in it? Yeah, it's got this huge... Technically, it's it's ridiculous, that map is absolutely... It's two feet by three feet, and it's like, I don't know, maybe six big blocks of end-grain maple. And I, I made all the blocks from wood, that, from a maple tree that I'd cut down for the silva. I, I've just gotten into manufacturing the blocks to such a degree by that point that, uh, I mean, technically there's a lot going on in that book. It, plus... It's extensive text, and it's all handset from type that I had had cast and printed from for previous books in my life. And that took an incredible amount of work. It took you seven years. Yeah, it was a seven-year project. So that's probably the book I'm proudest of, I suppose. And now the book we're working on now. And there have been a lot of little books through the years that I've really enjoyed working on. I did a series of little books. Um, at one point, I was doing a, a broadsides with the Hungry Mind Bookstore in St. Paul, which was this great independent bookstore, no longer with us, sadly. But I did a series of broadsides with them, and that introduced me to a lot of young contemporary authors. And then I started doing little books with people like Edwidge Danticut and John Dufresne and Pete Hotman, who was a National Book Award winner. A lot of really good writers. You know, and for a while I was the it was a subscription series, and it was a hundred dollars a book, mm. and people subscribe to that series. I can't afford to do books for a hundred dollars anymore, but mm. at that time I had a lot of fun with those little books. So those would probably be kind of fun to collect. Robert Bly I did one with Robert Bly, mm-hmm. which was really interesting working with him. What about other printers and uh, fine press proprietors? What what do you covet? Well, actually, across the hall, there's a printer named Philip Gallo who just moved over here. And when I first moved to the Twin Cities from North Dakota in the late 70s, Jerry Lang, who I mentioned earlier, the Beeler Press, Phil Gallo of the Hermetic Press with his press were here. And they were sort of my mentors, the two of those guys. Well, Phil is now across the hall. He, he studied with Harry Duncan, who was, of his generation, a famous printer who taught at Iowa. And Phil is trained as a poet, concrete poet, who turned printer. 
But Harry Duncan in Iowa and um, Walter Hamady in Wisconsin were two of the last great last generation printers. And Phil studied with Harry and Jerry studied with Walter. So between those two guys, indirectly I learned a lot from the previous generation. So yeah, I, I think a lot about Phil's work. I think a lot of his work. He, he did a book called Found Poems, which I have a copy of, which has been very influential to me. Why is that? Because that book sort of made me understand that text is everywhere. It's just a question of recognizing it. There were a lot of poems in there that were, were fragments of overheard conversations, which he would then take the time to very thoughtfully and carefully set in metal type and print and put them in this exquisite book. And in that context, it's a whole different thing that language is. And so for a lot of the books I was doing, particularly for a while, I was finding, I still do, I'm, you know, uh, whether I'm finding text through interviewing someone or whether I'm finding text in, you know, 100-year-old newspaper articles or signage or wherever the text is, the words are everywhere. Words, words that what, that are worth preserving? that can be used, that are useful. In the context of a finely, thoughtfully produced book, mm -hmm. take on a whole new meaning. What was the question again? Whose work do you covet? Do I covet? Okay, uh, well, Carol Lee Campbell, down in California, who is a brilliant printer. To me, she's the epitome of an artist book. I mean, she's so sensitive. She works exclusively with poetry. She's very sensitive to her subject, to the materials, into her work, into her life, and her work is fabulous. Russell Moret, jokingly, is called Young Russell in our world, who is a brilliant printer from New York. Um, David Esselmont down in Iowa, uh, the Somentes Press, who I worked with in Wales, and mm -hmm. I've been in touch with At the Greganog. The Greganog yeah. Press, yeah. yeah. I spent a half a year there illustrating, and you know I don't like the term illustrating, but David wanted illustrations from Whitman's Civil War poems. So... Well, this is a dangerous can of worms because there's so many people I could talk about. Yeah. Robin Price, she does beautiful, incredible work. And she's another one. She, she actually learned how to print from Gerald Lang as well. So she has that same fine printerly influence that I do. And Russell, out in New York, actually learned to print from Peter Koch out in California, mm -hmm. who is another great contemporary printer who... You're familiar with Codex. Yeah. It's like the world's fair of the book arts, and Peter was so instrumental in getting, and still is, in getting that going. Mm -hmm. But we but, all get together. We get together out in California every other year, and over at, in, in Manhattan now every year, and Oak Knoll was a great fair for us. And that was sort of the beginning of the fine press book fairs in this country. Uh, the late Bob Fleck started that, and now his son Robbie is... I didn't know that he died. He did in the last year, tragically, mm. suddenly. Mm. But but his son Rob is determined to carry on, so I think we're going to have an Oak Knoll Fest again next fall. And then, of course, the Oxford Press. And you've Fair. won you've won some important yeah the, the Silva one the Silva one the Greg and Og Prize at the Oxford Fair one year. But that's been a huge fair for for all of us too mm -hmm. in this world, and it is a small world, and we yeah it's a wonderful world though because. Everybody's very generous, and everybody, you know, people aren't trying to hide their secrets. Everybody's very, very generous with their, their knowledge. And then there's Claire Van Vliet, who I think when we had this conversation, she didn't really buy it, but to me, she's responsible for bringing women 
not that there haven't been women involved in fine in private press work over the years, but it's sort of a male-dominated industry. But she kind of started this whole shift into the artist book world, I think, because she brought a real, a different kind of a tactile sensibility to the work. I mean, she was really into paper making and lithography and structures, binding structures and everything like that. But she learned printing from one of the old guys, and she was an excellent printer, and she was in that same vein that Robin and Price and myself and Russell and Carolee, and we're all based in, in traditional typography and fine printing. So mm-hmm. she was a very influential person as well. Just finally then, what about printers that are no longer with us that uh, people may have heard of over the over the years. So there, is there anyone that you particularly admire? Uh, well, I, I already mentioned Hamity and Duncan. I'm not as familiar with the, the East Coast, or the West Coast printers, the Grabhorns. I know the names, but I, I don't know their work. But there's a guy named Vance Gary that John Randall is obsessed with. Oh, I forgot to mention John. John has been one of the most influential people in my life about printing, about surviving, and about just being gracious and about being fair and about, you know, not overpricing things. And, and just, he, he has been, a, he's, like the, he's like our godfather. In fact, one year, he was always used to have a party after the Oxford Fair at the Whittington, and we'd all go there. And one year after the fair, he was playing the theme from The Godfather <laughs> the whole weekend I was there. It was just a little cassette recorder in his shop, and it was kind of slowing down and everything, but it was, it was playing the whole time. But there are lots of English presses that, that, that I've been very... Like um, the Fleece Press does incredible work. Graham Moss does amazing work up in Oldham. Sebastian Carter, of course, is a great printer. I mean, I could go on. Yeah. <laughs> and I, my fear right now at this particular point of this interview is I'm going to leave somebody out. Well, again, I've, I've just said that you particularly covet rather than, you know, who you... You think it's good. Well, as far as my personal collection, it's mostly people that I've been associated with, and we just trade, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I have a lot, I have a beautiful collection. I have a lot of great books from my friends. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for coming. I've been speaking with Gaylord Shanilak, the bookie (laughs) from St. Paul, Minneapolis. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you.